So if you're an old hand at centering prayer, uh, you probably know the story. It's legendary by now about the birth of centering prayer, which took place about 40 years ago, somewhere around 1975, and about uh, 30 miles west of here, right out Route 9 at St. Joseph's Trappist Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts, where at the time, uh, Thomas Keating was abbot of a small group of Trappist monks stumbling out of their life of silence and prayer into the blinking bright light of post-Vatican II uh, Catholicism and the late 1960s. So little by little, down the road from St. Joseph's Abbey, a former Franciscan uh, retreat center had gone bust and had been bought by a new group, uh, the Buddhist Insight Meditation Center. And all of a sudden, there began to be an increase of traffic knocking at the doors at St. Joseph's Abbey, asking for directions to the Insight Meditation Center. <laughs> so Thomas Keating began to engage these people who were mostly stereotype uh, 60s with a backpack on the back and the long hair, looks just like me. Uh, and uh, asking, why are you going to the Insight Meditation Center? And the answer was basically, a path, man, we're looking for a path. So Thomas, observing that most of these people were by birthright uh, Christians and even Catholics, said, why aren't you looking for a path in your own tradition? At which point their jaws dropped and they said, you mean Christianity has a path? <laughs> and, you know, whatever the theologians may be saying out there in the colleges of theology, uh, for the people on the ground, the meaning of a path is perf perfectly clear. It's something that is grounded in meditation that actually transforms your consciousness and changes how you live in the world. So Thomas went back and, and issued to his monks the celebrated challenge. He says, is it not possible to take the combined wisdom of the Christian contemplative tradition and reformat it in a form based in meditation accessible to modern people working in the world? So one of the monks in that community, Father William Minninger, took him up on the challenge and Father William went back to the book that he had most known and loved in his own contemplative upbringing, The Cloud of Unknowing, that 14th century anonymous British spiritual classic. And there in chapter 7, William came upon the sentence, the paragraph, that would form the essence of Centering Prayer, which went like this. He's talking about that, that not a lot of words are necessary, says the author of The Cloud, but only a single intent direct to God. A naked intent is the actual word, direct to God. And then the paragraph in question. And if you desire to have this aim, 
concentrated and expressed in a single word so that you are better able to grasp it. Take but one short word of a single syllable. This is better than two, for it better accords with the work of the Spirit. Choose a word like God or a word like love. Choose whatever, you per, whatever word you prefer, uh, provided that it is one syllable. And clasp this word tightly to your heart so that it never leaves, no matter what might happen. Aha! Voila, says William, in whatever is the Celtic equivalent of voila. <laughs> and, uh, and the method of centering prayer was born. They started offering it at the, at the retreat house at St. Joseph's Abbey, first calling it the prayer of the cloud. Uh, and then they decided to sort of spruce up the title, and they borrowed a language from Thomas Merton and called it centering prayer. Uh, and clergy remained mildly interested in it. But it very, very soon caught on like wildfire among the lay people. By, by, 20, by, by 1983, the number of people trooping out to, uh, by now, Snowmass, Colorado, where Thomas Keating had moved to St. Benedict's Abbey, to take 10-day formation in in retreats was getting so great that they realized that what was needed was a grassroots membership organization to help people keep track of the sheer numbers of people and help them progress on their journey. So contemplative outreach was born, and that's why we're here today. Uh, so from that point on, uh, contemplative outreach recently passed its 30th anniversary, and people have really been doing centering prayer for about 40 years now, some people, spearheading a revolution in Christian consciousness and really offering a path, man, a path, so that many, many people have felt welcome to come back to Christianity realizing that you don't necessarily have to jump ship and become a Buddhist or a Hindu to do a path seriously based in meditation. You can if you want. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you want to do it within the devotional and theological structure of your own Christian tradition, here's Centering Prayer. Anyway, I want to take up one very interesting subset of this, that what this actually means is that we now have a database that basically stretches back, in some cases, as long as 40 years of people who have been getting to know the cloud of an unknowing as a meditation practice, who's actually been taking the instructions and implicitly the methodology of the cloud of unknowing and working it out uh, twice a day on the meditation cushion. Because considering prayer, uh, as we're going to see today, actually sticks close to the cloud of unknowing. Not only in the spirit of the, or the letter of the teaching, but in the spirit of the teaching. And that's going to be the essence of what I'm going to show you today. But they really are close. So we've got 
40 years worth of people who've been sitting down meditating according to the counsels actually put forth by the cloud of unknowing. And this is actually very significant because it opens up a window, a way of knowing about the cloud that is not accessible simply with the mind alone simply to theological education, simply to academic inquiry. There's parts of the cloud that can only be known by actually doing the practice, it suggests, and that until you do it, it remains invisible. So what I'm going to say is that most of what I have learned about the cloud over over the past 40 years, has come from actually sitting on the prayer stool and doing the practice. I was first exposed to the cloud of unknowing way back before Centering Prayer even. I was exposed to it back in the 1960s when I was doing graduate work in medieval studies. And the cloud is interesting because in addition to being a classic in Christian spirituality, it's also one of the core, most interesting specimens in Middle English because it's one of the first works written in Middle English, which in the 14th century was only just emerging out of the three language streams, French language and Anglo-Saxon, which gave birth to the English language. So it's on par with the Canterbury Tales and all that as an absolutely fascinating specimen in the history of the English language. So I first knew it as a medievalist, and of course it went right over my head. I didn't comprehend it a bit. It seemed like nonsense. Uh, so it wasn't until I actually sat down and started doing the practice that I said, oh, I get it. And it was Thomas Keating's strict interpretation of the spirit of the cloud that actually let me start doing the practice, as I'm going to show you today. He takes a very, very hardball uh, interpretation of what the cloud is actually saying and holds our feet to the fire in how we live it. So we'll, we'll be looking at that. But it was because of that that I actually began to see from sitting on the cushion, that the cloud has been consistently, in my estimation, misinterpreted by the academic tradition. It's classically categorized, even by very, very good scholars of the Christian uh, contemplative tradition, as a key piece of affective love mysticism coming in the school, the great school of St. Bernard of Clairvaux and others. And of course, there's reasons that you would think this if you're just reading with your mind. Because it does specifically say that God can be, can, can be held close by means of love, but by means of thought, never. So it sounds like love mysticism. I'm going to try to see, and the whole point of my book is to say it isn't. That by, because by what he means by love is so far different from what people would automatically assume is meant by it, that they're not even in the same 
ballpark. That I believe instead what we are looking about here, and this really, really fascinates me, is that we are seeing a groundbreaking Christian study in the phenomenology of consciousness. Phenomenology means how something works. And we're really seeing in this fantastic treatise a, a struggle. You know, six centuries before Ken Wilber and others, spiral dynamics, were giving us maps of levels of consciousness. This author is trying to show how, uh, how what he calls contemplative, the work of contemplation, is really uh, about what nowadays scholars would call the access to a stabilized non-dual perception. It has to do with rewiring the field of perception. And in here, the instructions that he gives about letting go of objects of attention are going to be crucially important to the dawning and the stabilization of a new kind of operating system of perception. All of this is here in the text, which makes it a groundbreaking work six centuries ahead of its time. I think it really ought to be included in every kind of classic anthology of the history of consciousness. But the problem is you can't see this unless you've actually been doing the practice. And so I believe that our practice in centering prayer is not only something that's been transforming our own consciousness and patiently over 40 years laying the groundwork for a smooth and painless transition into non-dual awareness. But second, it gives us a data bank of interpretive experience, which is basically invisible to scholars with the mind alone. So that, in a nutshell, is what my book is about. Now, I realize we have a fairly short workshop today, and that, uh, that it really has been put forward for, by, by contemplative outreach as a way of deepening and clarifying and intensifying your own practice. And I want to be respectful of that. So my, my purpose today is to just give you a little bit of a trailer of the book, but basically to come down on the places in the actual practice of centering prayer where we can fine-tune practice and really work the connections where centering prayer and the cloud are leveraging each other, uh, jacking each other up, uh, so that perhaps in our work today, you can better understand uh, the reasoning and the context between some admittedly counterintuitive instructions in centering prayer. And that you can really have a little bit of wider context of where they're coming from and where they're going, and perhaps a re-evaluated uh, re look at what it means to be a contemplative and to be in this work of transforming mind and heart 
through a practice of contemplative prayer. So that's where we're going today. It's really a little teaser, and I'm going to leave one whole line of what's in the book unexplored, partially because it would take two days to do it. And I will say one other thing, that I made an executive decision that I'm going to pitch this talk toward people who have a little bit of experience in the prayer. Uh, and so some of the re its reference points will be taken that way. I'll try to build, build up the slack or take up a little bit of the slack so if you're brand new to centering prayer, you can kind of get some context clues. But if I spend a whole, the whole day teaching an introductory workshop in centering prayer, that's all we do. And I'm assuming that your contemplative outreach chapter has many such events going on in Boston, and they're listed out there? Yeah. When's the next one coming up? Do you know? November what? 12th. Where? In Linfield. Oh, St. What's? Okay, so if you're intrigued with this and want to go further, uh, my apologies if I seem to be pitching over your basic head, but we, you can go out there to Linfield in a couple of weeks and get yourself really properly initiated with the patient, uh, nuts and bolts, careful introductory retreat, which has been bringing people into Centering Prayer for 40 years now. So uh, anyway, with that in mind, I'm going to ask the question, first of all, what is it that we're actually doing during a period of centering prayer? Well, you sit down on your, your meditation seat or on your chair, and for 20 minutes you're doing centering prayer. And there's languaging carefully provided to you in... Uh, in all the textbooks and all the instructions on centering prayer. What we're doing is, in centering prayer language, consenting to the presence and action of God. Heard that before? Yep. Or you may have heard preparing the faculties to receive the gift of contemplation. Any of you heard that? Uh, that's Thomas Keating's uh, sort of more scholastic language uh, to kind of to keep people at bay that are saying, well, centering prayer can't really be contemplation because contemplation is a gift. So, so we're preparing the faculties to receive the gift of contemplation. Well, these are theological ways of describing what we're doing when we're sitting down there. But when you actually sit down there, nuts and bolts, for 20 minutes, what you're doing is you're letting go of thoughts, aren't you? Because remember that key piece of teaching in Centering Prayer, right there in the guideline, is you sit down, get yourself properly ready, and, uh, and open yourself uh, to your deepest intention to be totally available to the Divine Presence. And then, as the instruction goes, you begin to gently insert your sacred word as a symbol of that content, consent. And then in the famous guideline three, when you become aware that you are engaged with a thought, you return ever so gently to your sacred word. 
So in point of fact, what this practice looks like in centering prayer is continuous sort of micro-adjustments. You become aware that somehow your attention has gotten grabbed on a thought. You release it, allowing your sacred prayer, uh, your sacred word, to help expedite the motion of releasing. So what you're doing during centering prayer is releasing thoughts, sometime virtually nonstop. If you've had one of those days where uh, your mind is just going like a popcorn machine, poop, 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 thought after thought after thought, you release one, 10 more come on. Remember what Thomas Keating said, how lovely, 10,000 opportunities uh, to relearn to God. And, and sometimes we think that what we're drawing is trying to get the mind quiet so that God can come. But that's not what we're doing. And what I've tried to emphasize in my own means of teaching centering prayer is that the releasing is where the rubber hits the road. It is itself the heart of the practice. Letting, letting go quietly, quietly, of whatever your mind has gotten itself fixated around, opening it up, it's a gesture that has validity and importance within its own right. And what I've tried to do in my own teaching of Centering Prayer, since the appearance of Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening uh, 10 years ago, is to help people envision that, that gesture theologically in terms of the principle of kenosis, or self-emptying, or letting go, as in Philippians 2, when Paul encourages us to put on the mind of Christ, and then goes on to describe that mind, saying, though his state was that of God, yet he did not deem equality with God something he should cling to. Rather, he emptied himself. That's the word kenosis, kenosine. Rather, he let go. So what I've been trying to do for people is to help them see this letting go of thoughts in terms of kenosis, that core practice of Christ, which is putting on, instrumental in putting on the mind of Christ. And the reason I've done this is to help people value the action itself of letting go. It's not true that God only comes when your mind is silent. It's not true that you have to make it vowy, vowy, quiet uh, for God to interact with you. How could the author of all noise only make contact with you in silence. So we've borrowed in that sense a little bit of an Eastern vision of silence and mentality and tried to paste it on a Western practice. And people that think the goal is to make it quiet always wind up frustrated and always wind up somehow boxing in their mind. Like, is this quiet? Is this a thought? Do I have to let it go? The middle chatter goes on and on and on and on. It's the operating, it's the, it's the shadow side of centering prayer. But if you can just end run it in the first place, to say that these thoughts give you a practice, a way of, of, of 
practicing this canonic motion, this letting go. And that you're, whenever you do that, even for however simple a thought, you are participating in the core action of Christ, in the mind of Christ. And a lot of what I do in my book is to show you how that's so, not only attitudinally, but neurologically. You actually, when you move your mind out of being grabbed onto a thought into, there are, there is a, a drop and release which is actually perceptible on an, on, you know, when you're wired up in neuromeditation, and something is changing. So I'm trying, I try myself in my teaching of centering prayer to set, get, say, let go of this goal of trying to achieve a unbreakable stillness. And instead, just stay with, when a thought comes up, joyfully practice letting go. And even if 10 more thoughts come in, joyfully practice it 10 more times. Something is changing. Something is changing inside, and that change inside is going to do two things. First of all, it's going to make it a lot easier for you to take that letting go attitude of centering prayer out into the world narrowing the gap between prayer and life. Because the same thing you're practicing when you let go of thought in centering prayer is the same thing you're practicing when your angry boss is in your face uh, berating you and humiliating you. Okay? It's, It's a new capacity of the soul, and it transfers directly from the meditation cushion to your daily life. That's why Thomas Keating said, look for the fruits of centering prayer in daily life. Yeah, remember that little teaching? The other thing you're doing that I'm going to, that I talk about more in the book and won't go into today is that you are neurologically preparing a ground in which a whole different system of perception can take place, which is known nowadays as non-dual perception. You're laying the wiring, just like people when they're building buildings come in and put the wiring in first before they put the the sheetrock in and the painting and everything. So in that sort of way, you're building into the walls of your consciousness the wiring that will be able to run the non-dual program when the time is ripe. Hold that thought. Anyway, just for clarification, a thought in Centering Prayer is anything that draws your attention to a focal point. Okay, You all remember that. If you've had the introductory uh, workshop, you'll know that. So a thought is not just a conceptual thing. It's not an idea. A thought can be a, a sudden surge of a feeling, a flashback, a retrieved memory, an illumination, a voice from God, an itch on your nose, or an overwhelming urge to go to the bathroom. You know, if it draws your attention to a focal point, it's a thought. And the instructions in centering prayer are always, and without exception, 
if it if it becomes a thought, in other words, if it draws your attention to a focal point and you recognize that's happening, you let it go. So a thought is an object for your attention. And we're going to see that comes right out of the cloud of unknowing. Uh, and we let it go. And we let it go without any regard to the worth of that object. Uh, and I'm going to come back to this because this is crucially important. But you know, Thomas Keating's really deep teaching that if the Blessed Virgin herself should come up and offer during the time of centering prayer uh, to, uh, to pluck that wound from your side, the answer, remember Thomas and his little yabaka, his little trappist beanie, saying, the answer is, not now, dearie, I'm doing my centering prayer. <laughs> And everybody goes, ouch, wrong, no. But it's, ouch, right, yes. So what we're doing in Centering Prayer is totally hard-nosed. Anything that serves as a focal point for your attention, you let go during the time of Centering Prayer. And we're going to show you why. But I'm going to take a sort of interesting uh, side route to get into that. Have you ever noticed what happens uh, in the gap between the thoughts? You know, there is in Centering Prayer this, this funny moment. Uh, when you release a thought, yes, others come rushing back in very frequently. But there is that gap, sometimes merely a, a nanosecond, but a slight gap. And if you get adept at inner inquiry, not during the time of the prayer, but if you, if you notice for a little while, there occurs a moment when you're present and alert, but your attention is not focused on any particular thing. It usually only lasts like this, but it happens. Uh, you are briefly in a state of non, or what you would call, objectiveless awareness. In other words, aware without an object of awareness. Now, I'd say that this fleeting taste uh, in the gap between the thoughts is a whole different bandwidth of consciousness, which is extensively commented on in Eastern meditation traditions, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism. But we go sailing right through it in the Western tradition uh, like a red light we haven't even seen. Most people don't notice it at all, and if they do notice it, it's, con it's conceived of as being unimportant. But but in the East, it's not unimportant at all. And to the cloud of unknowing, it's not unimportant to, at all. For this is a beginning of a whole different way of holding your attention. Uh, it is the tip of the tip of an iceberg that goes way, way down into a whole different understanding of att attention. 
And it's this understanding of attention that really is going to be implicitly at stake in everything we do today. So attention, as we understand it in the West normally, is implicitly an energy connecting a subject to an object, right? I pay attention to my driving. Pay attention to the lecture. Pay attention to what you're reading. Pay attention to what you're doing. Uh, I pay attention to my breathing. Uh, so we, we use it. When, when anybody says pay attention, you'll almost automatically say, to what? Right? Because that's the way we think of attention in the West. It connects a subject to an object. Uh, and we know that if people have good powers of attention, they can voluntarily place their attention on something and keep it there. Or else, if it gets disrupted, they can bring it back to what they've chosen to put their attention on. And a lot of meditational training, uh, sort of classic meditational training, certainly in most Eastern paths, begins with this point. Learning to make your attention conscious and voluntary. In other words, I put my attention on a mantra, and for the time of the meditation period, that's where I keep it. And it doesn't matter what else comes into my mind, I return it to the mantra. So it's a beginning starting point in most spiritual training to bring your attention under your conscious control, regardless, or as we like to say, grammatically improperly, irregardless of whether the object of attention is inherently interesting or not. You know, and this, this is absolutely brand new revolutionary thinking to most people today. You know, why should I pay attention to dishwashing? It doesn't interest me. You know, that most of us today live in a, in a culture in which our attention is grabbed. In other words, attention lies in the power of the object. And <clears throat> something hooks us, and we immediately swivel our heads to look at it. And we keep our attention there until something else grabs it. That is what in the classic traditions the Buddhists call monkey mind. Every association grabs us, uh, we have no staying power in our attention. We can't place it in a place, and we can't keep it in a place. So basic spiritual training, whether it's mindfulness or whatever, uh, Christian meditation, Vipassana, it all begins with bringing your attention under your voluntary control uh, so that it becomes a project, uh, an energy that resides in the subject and goes out to the object. Get what I'm saying? Rather than an energy that is given to the object and goes back and grabs the subject. So early spiritual work is basically about training your attention to stay under your conscious control, to be placed voluntarily on an object, and to remain there. 
Centering prayer is not working, of course, with that kind of attention. Uh, It is working with conferring, returning the power of attention to the subject simply by withdrawing attention from the object. Every time you realize you're hooked with the thought, you let it go. Uh, But we typically and normally and almost universally think of attention as a as an energy of connectivity. However, there is a different configuration of attention. That attention typically exists in this form, connecting subject to object, but it can also exist in a different way as a kind of energy pocket, a vibrational field with its own tensile strength. So it circumscribes a kind of field. The best image I know of this uh, is by analogy to the substance mercury. Remember back in the good old days when you had mercury thermometers and you smashed them? And the mercury could either go out like a puddle but it could also sort of quiver around like a weeble. You know, a weeble wobbles, but it don't fall down. And, and mercury does that. Attention can do that. It can hold a tensile strength of its own, and within that, it defines a vibrational field of a different kind of awareness what you would call a higher strength of awareness. Uh, and within this field of awareness, uh, you can be conscious of the whole without having to split the field into the usual subject-object polarization that we use to make sense of the world. So we're talking basically about different operating systems. We use the subject-object hardwiring to make sense of our reality. I'm here, you're there, it's over here, I like this, I don't like this, this building is big, this, you know, it's all using that capacity, that liquid capacity of attention. But the traditions have said that if you can manage to collect this tensile vibrational field within as a new center of perceptivity, you can perceive in a different way through objectless awareness without having to split your field into a subject-object in order to be aware. And in the Eastern traditions, which talk about this intensely, it's regarded as, a, as an advanced discipline, as an advanced capacity of perception that really equates to what's meant by non-duality. It's non-dual because we don't split the perceptual field into subject and object, okay? Uh, So while it's not talked about extensively in the West, I'm convinced that the West know about it. When we talk about recollection, or in the Eastern Orthodox equivalent of it, vigilance, That's what's meant. It doesn't mean that we're memory, you know, we're remembering, don't recollect it. It's we ourselves who become recollected, our energy of attention gathered so it's not going out to objects. 
but is able to abide within in this deep, luminous, but diffuse awareness in which it is perfectly natural and easy to become aware of and in the divine presence. In other words, that awareness of divine presence is accessed in a state of deep recollection, which means ourselves, our attention, gathered, withdrawn from objects, and hovering within in the region of our heart and chest, quivering, as Rumi liked to say, like a bead of mercury. Uh, we, we celebrate today uh, the feast day of St. Teresa of Avila, and she was the great all-time master in our Western tradition of, de- of recollection. And I would like to believe that this is what she's talking about, that it's not that we're thinking about God seriously and earnestly, God being the object, but that we enter this guarding of our attention so that our split perceptual field comes back together again. And in that higher vibrational bandwidth, divine awareness and our own awareness co-mingle as one diffuse field of inter-abiding. That's objectless awareness. And we taste it in centering prayer in those nanoseconds between the thoughts, which is why the practice is so crucially important. I wanted to share, because this just delights me, a a question that happened to show up on my inbox in my, uh, we have a little feature on one of my websites, the Northeast Wisdom Insight, and a fellow who's been doing Centering Prayer reported on an experience like this. He he says, uh, talking about experiences I've had during Centering Prayer, Sometimes while sitting, my normal mode of operation is in full swing. Anything and everything is going on through going through the mind. On a handful of, of occasions recently, something else has happened. Uh, uh, now, two predominant thought feelings have been with me for years. The first is that it is much simpler than we're making it out to be. And the second is that there is a space between where something fundamentally different can happen. While sitting, this between action has taken place. Between a thought or feeling or sensation, a different action has taken place inside me. Right on, brother. And then he describes, on one occasion, I saw the split between personality and ego On another came the realization that we have a life, as opposed to the constant searching for one that seems to be the norm. We have one and all we need to do and participate. Both of these and other feelings were accompanied by a feeling of joy and clarity that lasted several hours into my workday. Yes, because what he did brilliantly is he stumbled into that gap and tasted that energy of intimacy, of abundance, 
that is the heart and the nature of that co-mingling of divine awareness and our own awareness in that intertidal zone of love, which is there as soon as the subject-object capacity of attention is silenced. So we taste it a little in Centering Prayer, and mostly it's only those maddening tastes because thought is right back in again. But we're beginning to pattern it. And sometimes, even when you've had one of those Centering Prayer experiences where every minute feels like 20 minutes, uh, and you say, wow, that was a waste, and yet you say, it's the best thing that happened all day because there's this strange sense of having been touched and having tasted attentive tenderness, it lies there in that field of intimate awareness. That intimate thing that happens in the gap between thoughts. Now, I know this is a lot to throw at you, and this is probably going to be the most difficult conceptual piece of the morning. You do it right off the bat when the energy is fresh. But I'd like to try and circle back in maybe about five minutes and say, can you see what insight that has to shed on that definite on that difficult instruction in Centering Prayer about insights and illuminations? Whatever Whenever a thought comes up, let it go. Even the Blessed Virgin. You know, and that's so frustrating because we're used to, in our prayer tradition, to entering silence in order to listen for messages. Isn't that what Elijah was doing out in the desert? And you can say even Jesus was doing on the shores of Galilee. We want to get it quiet, and then God speaks to us and says, Psst, Jeannie! Here, come over here. Let me tell you what to do. You know, that's what we want to do with our life. And, you know, I think we're less than candid if, if we say we, we're going to let those things go easily. But, you see, Thomas is exactly right. Because the moment you grab onto any insight, even if it has gold lace around it and feels like the mother load, and that's usually how our, our, our helpful little consciousness sets it up. You know, I'm going to pass up this, you know, hell no, you know. But the moment you grab, what's going to happen to your attention? It goes back into subject-object configuration, right? Right. And what we're going to see is that that bandwidth is less energetically charged. It works at a lower level. It takes you back to a lower state of attentiveness. You're right back into thinking, and you're right back into thinking of you as the subject that's having this experience of God. You know, and you better even put Centering Prayer on the pause button so you can quickly journal all these great things that God has said to you. You know, see, you've realized yourself and God at a lower level, at the usual cataphatic, here I am with my God, let's just walk together and share messages thing. Centering Prayer is not going for the brass ring here. Centering Prayer is going for the gold. It's stay, let go of the insight no matter how tempting, and taste, strengthen 
stabilize your consciousness. Lengthen the lengths of the nanoseconds if you can so that they begin to connect the dots and become a stable bandwidth of perceptivity. Get used to how it feels to be in a kind of awareness that can exist and in a deep way know it's aware without having to say, here I am being aware that I'm aware. You know, wipe out that whole kind of self-reflective translator mechanism and just be. I mean, the Buddhists have been talking about that for years. They call it rigpa, objectiveless awareness. And we're tasting it, I believe, every time we sit down to centering prayer, never, no matter how, quote, quote, badly we do the prayer, we get a hit because it's waiting for us in that space between the gaps. So Thomas is simply, in this way, offering us the highest possible outcome of the period of our prayer if we're beginning, if we're willing to trust and follow the rules. I remember one day when that happened to me, you know, it was midway, it was a turning point in my own practice. I'd always sat down at Centering Prayer and said, okay, got to do it, got to let go of the thoughts. Grudgingly, you know, I, I daydreamed a little so I could have a few of them, <laughs> but I, I tried to do the practice and let go of the thoughts. One day, I was in a Centering Prayer intensive, the middle Centering Prayer period of the middle triple sit of the day, right in the middle of the retreat, and up comes this sort of monumentally juicy insight. <laughs> and then something in me realizes instantly that if I grab, I'm going to be pulled right back into the usual dull, stale thinking. And I realize in an instant that the vibrational band in which I'm hanging out is infinitely aliver than anything that could be had by grabbing onto a thought. And so the first time in my life I actually voluntarily released a thought, not because I was a good girl playing by the rules, but because I saw for the first time what is at stake here. Centering prayer is saying in an absolutely powerful way, you let go of thoughts without exception, because what is at stake is not the worth of the thought, but the configuration of your attention. And if you get that, and it sometimes takes years to get that, but if you get that and begin to realize that what's going on in Centering Prayer in those delicious spaces between all the manipulation and pushing it around and middle combat and worrying is actually the real deal. And that it is beginning to express itself in how you rise from the prayer cushion and go out into your life. If you can just trust that, little by little, the pieces will fill in. And you can find that you're actually at a place way different from where you thought you were. And actually, blessedly, closer to where you want to be.
what I'd like to do then in this little bit is to go back and unpack how some of this instruction about the letting go, the, the letting go of thoughts, uh, the, the reconfiguration of your attention is actually implicit in the cloud of unknowing and may serve as an interpretive key to some of its most difficult passages. Uh, so the cloud of unknowing, let's talk about it a little bit first. Uh, it's a 14th century English spiritual classic. And as I said a little bit before in my first talk, it was written by an anonymous spiritual teacher, uh, clearly monastic, uh, in the 14th century, and is roughly contemporaneous with some of the other great things that happened in the 14th century, uh, like the Canterbury Tales and Julian of Norwich. It, it comes from that period when Britain, when the language all of a sudden came together and the vernacular that we nowadays know as English came into being. Uh, it may not look like English when you read it uh, because it looks like a real, real German English, but it's the start of the headwaters of our, of our language. So the author is anonymous, and of course, as soon as somebody is anonymous, people speculate, why? And there have been all sorts of speculations, uh, including that maybe it was anonymous because he was a she. Uh, I don't think so, although I'd like to say that it certainly is conceivably possible. Uh, the reason that, uh, that it would be a woman is no reason it couldn't be written. Julian of Norwich wrote by her own name. But more, when I read the language and imagery base uh, of the thing, it just feels so overwhelmingly male. The, the language about riding into warfare and spears and barrels and piercing the cloud of unknowing, uh, just unless it was written secretly by Joan of Arc. Uh, the, uh, the energy seems male to me. And I'm, I'm pretty much with the usual interpretation that it was probably written by an older Carthusian monk. The Carthusian order is a rather strict, contemplative, silent, uh, people are sort of separated and deeply silent order that really does deep exploration of the spiritual life. Uh, clearly written to a disciple who already has considerable practice under his belt and is is advancing to a stage which the author calls contemplative. And in the afternoon, we're going to talk about what is meant by this phrase, so we'll just hold it. But he's, he's trying to take this young student and bring him along to the next level in his spiritual journey. Uh, one of the reasons that it might be uh, anonymous is that it may have happened within in-house in a monastery without a lot of emphasis given to author and identity. Uh, another reason is that clearly the times were dicey. 
Already in this century, you would begin to see the headwaters of the movement towards let's get the Bible into the vernacular and into the hands of the lay people. Uh, the beginning of the Lollards, the first uh, threats to the monolith of Roman Catholic authority. And about less than 100 years later, you would find people writing in the language of the non-dual, like Meister Eckhart, uh, running seriously afoul of the political and hierarchical structure of the church. So some of the propositions that the author is advancing here uh, could be construed as dicey, certainly so if you're writing, if you're exploring them from that level of simply conceptual thought. Because like most mystics and visionaries, he's writing from a different kind of level and in a different kind of language uh, that really kind of scrambles and defies uh, what it seems like it says to the rational mind. And if any of you are scholars out there, I want to plow into that in a book that's a classic in the field, though quite difficult. Uh, I recommend Michael Sells, S-E-L-L-S, The Mystical Language of Unsaying, as a powerful look at the language that mystics write and teach in and how it goes about scrambling dualistic propositions. That'll be a footnote for most of you, but if you want to dig into it. Uh, mystical utterance is consistently misunderstood because it emerges from a different level of consciousness. Uh, anyway, it's better to not put your signature to it if you prize your head and your genitals. Uh, so... <laughs> uh, enough being said, uh, when I first read The Cloud of Unknowing, it was in uh, the late 1960s, I read it in the Middle English. There's a whole set of textbooks that are put out by a wonderful organization called the Early English Text Society. Uh, and... Uh, where they just went in the early 20th century and began to collect all the manuscripts all over everywhere and get them out so people could at least raw, read the raw language. Uh, I had to read it in Middle English, and I later uh, discovered all of the usual suspects in the translations and discovered most of them range from bad to horrid. Uh, but more on that later. One of the things that I will, you'll find in my new book is a raw translation of most of the original texts, which I'll be reading from here, because most of the common texts we have, particularly the William Johnston one, that is everybody's most favorite popular book in contemplative outreach networks, badly distorts what's actually there in the Middle English, reads it through a heavy filter of theological assumptions that aren't there in the original, and thus actually make it difficult, if not impossible, to see what's going on in the Middle English. So, I've, so some of the things that I'll say today, if you go back to the Johnston or, uh, edition, you won't find it in the text but it is there in the Middle English. Well, whatever edition you're reading it from, you don't need uh, 
much more to be confused uh, when you read the first bit of the cloud chapter three, which is where the author really gets down to business. Yeah, I remember coming into this uh, when I was uh, 1968, I was 21, I was reading this classic. Uh, I was also a spiritual seeker at the time, though I didn't know it. And it says, lift up your heart unto God with a meek stirring of love and intend by that himself, capital H, God, and none of his goods. And to that end, be loath to think on anything else but on himself, so that nothing works in your mind or in your will, but only himself. And to do that in yourself is to forget all the creatures that ever God made and their works, so that your thoughts and your desires are not directed or stretched to any one of them, either in general or in specific. But let them be and take no notice of them. Well, when I first read that, uh, that instruction, I thought what this author was trying to say, that what you were supposed to do is to think about God 24-7 and nothing else. It says that. And uh, lift up your heart unto God and intend by that himself. Intend God and none of his goods, none of his other stuff. And be loath to think on anything else but himself. Uh, so I thought, okay, well, if you want to be a contemplative, you just got to think about God 24-7. So let's not think about picking up my daughter at the daycare center, and let's not think about paying the income tax. And, and I was feeling sort of vaguely guilty every time I thought about anything else except God. Well, Later in chapter 6 in the cloud, he's going to make it more difficult by saying specifically, but of God, no man can think. <laughs> so, boom, <laughs> what catch 22. But, but anyway, the first instruction I saw here was that somehow you got to be thinking holy thoughts all day. You got to be pondering God all day or else you're not in the contemplative game. So I gave up on that pretty fast as useless. But then there was the other thing in there that was even more kind of offensive, and it said, and to do that uh, is to forget all the creatures that ever God made and their works, so that your thoughts and your desires are not directed to them. Well, that sounded like uh, just that kind of you know, meditational navel-gazing. Are we supposed to not love the creatures of this planet? And it is the word creatures that's used there. Uh, and it sounds like what he said is to shut yourself up in some little monastic ivory tower and just try to think about God all day and not care for anything beautiful in the world. Uh, and do you agree it sounds like that? Has that ever tripped you up? You know, it's, it's challenging. But I'm going to maintain, first of all, that the cloud of unknowing is written in a kind of code. That these language, that these, these terms, like cloud, like creatures, like think, like love, all have a specific meaning. And they're not quite the meaning that you think about when you just read them unaware of the context clues. And what you have to partly do is, is to unpack these and unravel them and find the first place where it begins to make clear sense and then develop your own glossary 
of what the cloud means by these terms. And I actually give you that in my book, but we'll get there. Um, but what I'm going to suggest is that this, this first piece that he can give you makes sense once you buy as a kind of hypothesis that what he's talking about here is he's trying to find metaphors to talk about the configuration of your attention. And so I'll go back and try and take you through it on that. Lift up your heart unto God with a meek stirring of love. Well, that part, sorry, I'm not going to break it open for you today, right now. I've got the rest of the book to do it about what he means by lifting up your heart with a meek stirring of love. Both of these ideas will come clear, what, what heart means, what meek means, and what stirring means. But today I want to stay focused on this object awarelessness bit, because it's a solid piece you can take home. Uh, and intend by that God and none of his goods. His goods and his creatures, the goods are all the objects, the virtues, the qualities of God. Let's not get thinking about the qualities. Let's just stay gathered on God. And then he goes on to say, and to that end, be loath to think on anything else but himself. So that, that admittedly sounds like he's saying, just think on God. Make God the subject of your attention. But then he adds this interesting thing, so that nothing works in your mind or in your will, but only himself. Now that's an interesting qualifier. He's saying, first of all, think about this. Keep your mind in God so that nothing else is there. You know, nothing works in either your mind or your will. But then he says but only himself. And if you follow the grammar of that sentence, what he's saying is not so much that you are thinking about God, but that God is working in you. Can you see how I get that? Listen, I'll say it one more time. Be loath to think on anything on himself so that nothing works in your mind or in your will. In other words, you're not putting your attention on anything, you're not bothering it, but only himself. In other words, God becomes the principal subjective agent working in you. And then he does this to say, and to do that in yourself is to forget all the creatures that ever God made and their works, so that your thoughts and your desires are not directed or stretched to any of them. Now, if you stay with that, forget them so that your thoughts and your desires are not directed or stretched to any of them. Well, that sounds a little bit like the instruction in Centering Prayer, doesn't it? To let go of all the objects of your attention. Uh, and I, I believe that's in case what he's saying. When he talks about forgetting the creatures, the closest equivalent is in the centering prayer, letting go, letting go of the objects uh, 
God himself, the objects of your attention, these creatures that God made, these thoughts, these, these virtues, these qualities, these, they're all objects of your attention, right? Let them go so that your thoughts and desires are not directed and that are very interestingly or stretched to any of them. Now, if you think about that in terms of, you know, what I was giving you as the subject-object connectivity, see that dimension of the attaching, stretching subject and object? It's a word that doesn't make sense unless you assume that he's, he's got this implicit notion of your attention in a couple of different forms. And a lot of the translations just wipe that one out. They don't know what stretched means. But it's a linear image talking about, let's let go of this linear configuration of our attention, running out to any of these creatures, any of these objects, any of these properties of God, anything that we can think of about God, uh, so that our mind and our attentions and thoughts are not directed there, either in general or in specific. And then, but let them be and take no notice of them. Straight out of Centering Prayer, right? It's almost like he had been one of Thomas Keating's students. <laughs> so we can begin to see. I think the closest way that you can begin to get a handle on the teaching here is if you start your glossary of the cloud of unknowing by saying forgetting means is the equivalent of what we call in Centering Prayer letting go. And he uses that almost synonymously. He will sometimes say, put a cloud of forgetting between you and them. That's a very, very common phrase in, in it. In other words, let them go. And enter what he calls a cloud of unknowing, which I am going to suggest just very lightly in this group, because we're not going to do textual analysis of the whole thing. But the cloud of unknowing is his metaphor for the kind of diffuse awareness that happens in this state of objectless awareness. And he calls it a cloud because clouds are cloudy, right? You don't see things sharply, particularly in this part of the world. But it is a kind, it's his image for a different kind of awareness, a different kind of perceptivity, a different kind of meeting ground. Remember, I talked this morning about this inter-abiding ground in which uh, your kind of awareness and the divine awareness are kind of co-mingled, so you're not seeing clearly God is not the object anymore the object of your thought. And I think the cloud of his unknowing is his, is his code word for that. So we forget or we put a cloud of forgetting between us and specific objects of our attention, which are consistently called in this book, the creatures. Uh, the thoughts, the objects of our attention. So he's not saying here to hate and disparage the world and spend your whole time trying to think about God because if you're thinking about God, God, God's self becomes an object, right? You know. But rather, let him be. 
Don't let your attention be stretched to them and forget them. So, uh, and just let them be. Don't try and cancel them out. Don't try and squash them. But enter this cloud where a different kind of perceptivity will gradually fill in. So all that's basically there. My real proof text for how this works uh, is in cloud five, which is a very, very short chapter. And if you read it in the Johnston edition, you won't get any of this translation. But he introduces an image of the archer with the target as a symbol of your attention. And I think it's, it's the most powerful single line clue to me that he's actually talking about the configuration of your attention. And here's how the passage goes in cloud five. For although it may be quite profitable to think sometimes of certain conditions or deeds of some certain special creatures, nevertheless, yet in this work, it profits little or nothing. And footnote here that I'm going to come back to this afternoon. Throughout this whole text, the, the author, the cloud author, is consistently referring to contemplation as a work. Which may leave some of you scratching your head because you're used to post-John of the Cross thinking of, of, of contemplation as a grace, right? But he is clearly thinking about it in this text and totally consistently as a work, something we do, something we are embarking on. And he, his instructions are given specifically throughout this text some, to somebody who wants to take on full seriously the work of contemplation. Okay. Uh, so... He's saying there in the first place that although it might be quite possible to think about certain conditions and deeds of certain special creatures, not, nevertheless, yet in this work, it profits little or nothing. Well, we know that, that so much of our kind of cataphatic meditation, so much of what's called making a meditation in our you know, in the preparatory prayer life, certainly in the Christian tradition, is about thinking about the qualities of things, right? Meditating on God's gracious gifts, his goodness, meditating on the cross, meditating on the sorrow of Mary. Uh, you know, we, we've, we're taught in cataphatic piety uh, to meditate in exactly that way thinking about the qualities of things and allowing the qualities of things to jumpstart our emotional responsivity to us. That's how it classically works in, in most of what we're familiar with in Christian devotion and theological prayer, but not in the work of contemplation. And through, throughout this whole book, he's going to make a sharp distinction between what goes on in what we would call cataphatic prayer and what is going on in this other, the work of meditation. So he says, this is what follows, uh, that 
thinking about the virtues of God, thinking gratefully about it, imagining God, conceiving of God, thanking of God, emotionally interacting, is not useful in the work of contemplation. And he says, why? This is because caring or thinking of any creature that ever God made or of any of their deeds is a kind of spiritual light. Huh? Now watch what he does with it. For the eye of the soul is opened on it and even fixed thereupon, just as the eye of an archer is fixed upon the target he is shooting at. Isn't that an extraordinary image? So he says, uh, this is... Uh, because thinking or caring of any creature that ever God made or any of their other deeds is a kind of spiritual light. Uh, the eye of the soul opens on it and fixes upon it. So this, so this thought, this quality, this virtue, this creature becomes a target in the same way that the eye of an archer fixes on a target he's shooting at. See the subject-object thing? that any time we put an object there, it becomes the object that the eye of the soul fastens on and fixates on. Uh, this is so profoundly talking about attention in the subject-object configuration that, you know, it's shocking. And it's so shocking that William Johnson just completely changed the whole thing so that it doesn't even make sense because it can only be accessed from the point of view of phenomenology, from the point of view that he's talking about the patterns, the configurations, the shape of consciousness and conscious attention. So he goes on to say after that, uh, and the one thing I will tell you that all that you think about is above you for a time and between you and your God. In other words, uh, whenever you put your attention in that way that it's got an object of your attention, that object of attention is above you in that it is completely occupying your attention. It draws it, boom, and between you and your God. Because when, you're, when your attention is fixated in that way, you're no longer in that undifferentiated field of diffuse awareness. And remember, that's exactly what I was saying before the break. When I had that experience myself where I had that great mother load of an insight, oh, I wanted it. Well, you know, that was sort of the light, you know, the target that the light of my soul was fixated on. And for the moment, I wanted only that. And then I realized that if I grabbed it, I would be thrown out of this other kind of awareness, this kind of cloud, this diffuse participational awareness in which divine awareness and my own are kind of intermingled, and that can only exist so long as you're not get letting your attention be drawn out to objects, okay? So that's what he's talking about. Uh, he says that all you think about is above you for a time. 
Them's fighting words. Think about that. Everything, it's above you because it completely consumes your attention. You disappear. And between you and your God, because he's saying very strongly in this work that if there's any access to participative, felt sense, union with God, it exists when your being, when your consciousness is in this state of diffuse awareness, which he will call or which he will identify with contemplation. Other than that, we're taking snapshots of our pictures of God and thinking about that. Uh, so he goes on to say, and to just such a good degree, you are farther from God if you are concerned about anything else but God. And once you, can, once you read that, you can begin to decode that language. He's not saying if you're concerned about changing your child's diapers or if you're... Concerned. He's saying that if you've placed your mind in this subject-object configuration so that you're thinking about something else, you're not thinking about God. And if you're thinking about God in that subject-object configuration, you're still not thinking about God. You get it? Because what we're talking about is a different quality of attention. Does that make sense at all? Does that begin to, to show you that, that as soon as you begin to see that the, that the cloud works on this mainspring, that he's really, really concerned, he intuits that when we put our consciousness, when we put our attention in subject-object configuration, it interposes a barrier that draws us into a different operating system, if you want to call it that way, which is sort of below the threshold of where you really want to live if what you want to live with is this felt sense vibrational union with, uh, with divine. If you want to enter the present relational field with divine being. Okay, so, he's, so he's saying, let's get rid of these tendencies to put our mind in that subject-object configuration. And he's going to work that throughout the entire book to the point where he's going to say over and over again that the practices that got you this far in your spiritual journey the ones that you learn to do, the saying prayers, the thinking about the, the, the glories of Christ, uh, even, God forbid, in this institution where I stand, you know, the, the spiritual exercises until they go to a really deep level and fall through the subject-object barrier, uh, belong to a level which is below the threshold of what he's, where he's setting the bar for contemplation. And if you want to do the work of, uh, of entering this contemplation, and we're going to look after lunch at what he means by that, you have to uh, cease and desist from those practices, at least for the time that you're doing the work of contemplation. Uh, and this will be a pervasive theme. 
what's there in chapter 7? And I, I didn't run it off, but I do have it in my book. And I, I take it apart for you blow by blow because it's hilarious. We all know that chapter 7 is the chapter in the cloud that, uh, that the author, you know, got, that William Menninger went to to get his, his, his method of, of centering prayer in a nutshell. But that's only one paragraph in a fairly long chapter. And what leads up to it is one of the most hilarious things I've ever seen. I'm living for a centering prayer skit one day, which reenacts it, because it's a dialogue between this poor petitioner sitting there on their meditation cushion trying to do contemplation, the work of contemplation, and this pesky thought who sort of sidles in and gives this poor person some beautiful things to think about, you know. In other words, is dangling the bait of, uh, of insights and illuminations before the person. And you start to take it first thinking, oh, he's giving me such wonderful things. Now he, he brings my mind to the wonders and gods of, of God's mercies. Now he lets me see his glorious deeds and benefits beneficences. Now he makes me feel the wondrous sorrow. And on and on he goes and says, and by and large, if you let him keep up with it, he will finally bring you down all the way to the passion. And at this point you go, oh, down to the passion? Isn't the passion the most powerful thing that Christians could possibly be meditating? But what he does, and he's exactly right, because he says there, as soon as you get doing uh, the passion, Mel Gibson walk in the door. <laughs> All of a sudden, it's drama, it's shame, it's guilt, it's, you know, it's, you're, you're completely out of the contemplative bulldog and back into the pathos of the emotions. And then he says, once you've bit the bullet there, then you'll start going from that right into looking at your own shameful and sinful life and all the things you have screwed up about. And, uh, and then he says, and by the way, and after the while, then he will let you see some of the places that you lived in the past. And you know, So what you see is your attention is getting more and more scrambled. And finally, say, he says, and finally you find yourself in bits and pieces and you know not how. And he, and he finally says, and the reason you got there is because you took his bait and did not put him down under the cloud of forgetting. Uh, so in other words, and you all know this for centering prayer, if when something twigs you and says, oh, thinking, thinking, yeah, well, let's just think it a little. It's kind of, you know, juicy. And, uh, you know, that your attention gets more and more scrambled. It gets into emotional reactivity, and then after that, it just pops and dissipates. It is an extraordinary portrait of how attention can scramble and dissipate once you take the hook of reconfiguring it in that subject-object thing. It's just brilliant and merciless and hilarious. And therefore, say, and therefore do not take him, but say, get thee down, get thou down, get thou down under the cloud of forgetting. It's, it's, it's total Middle English. Uh, so I think one of the ways that the cloud helps centering prayer 
is it gives us a very, very strong backup that what Thomas Keating is doing when he's insisting on this teaching, that no thought is worth thinking. That's actually a Mary Morzowski quote, uh, is he has absolutely strong resonance in the cloud of unknowing. That's exactly what this is saying. No thought is worth thinking if you are aspiring to this work of contemplation. Now, I think that the way that centering prayer can help the cloud of unknowing is that it takes this whole practice and brackets it a bit so that he's not saying all of a sudden 24-7 you can't think anymore. You know, you got to wander around bumping into telephone poles while you, you know, keep trying to keep your attention. What he's, what centering prayer really gives us is 20 minutes twice a day to begin seriously to do this practice of withdrawing attention from thoughts and allowing it in those times, in those nanoseconds between the gaps to, uh, to take the configuration that it wants to give us a foretaste, a foretaste that we aren't even consciously aware of. We're emotively aware of it, but not consciously. A foretaste of that undivided perceptual union, unity, which is contemplation. So it gives us that fork taste. It begins to lay down both attitudinally and neurologically the capacities to perceive, to actually run that program, if you want to call it that. And it does it for 20 minutes twice a day or forever, however long you meditate. And the rest of the time, it's business as usual. Go on out in the world and think. Of course you got to use your mind to figure out how to get from here back to the subway station, you know, or to figure out what you're doing for dinner or pay your income taxes or set up a retreat or whatever you're doing. Uh, don't try and wander around like a idiot, you know. Oh, here I am, God, here I am, you know. Uh, don't drive yourself nuts. Just do the practice in the 20-minute, twice-a-day, bracketed time and know that you're setting something profound in motion. And over the period of a long time consistently working with this, you're going to find that there are some changes in your being. Some of them have to do with a loosening of loosening of the grip on your identity with your small self. Whether false self or what you think is true self, I don't care. You know, you just don't go that there. Your, your, your attitude towards life becomes more, bound, more, more spacious, more unboundaried, more present. You're able more and more quickly to bring, bring yourself into mindfulness in the moment. All these things will happen naturally just out of the 20 minutes twice a day. And little by little, I would maintain that if you let that happen 
and you're not constantly bringing your attentions and your preoccupations back to how well am I doing? What is the story of my life? Am I, you know, if you're not going that way into the narrative so much, little by little, you're going to find that there's longer and longer stretches of time where that non-dual diffuse awareness is actually kicking in in your life as the method by which you're tracking reality. In other words, what I'm going to call this afternoon the gradual imprinting of the ascent to contemplative awareness, which is what we've been talking about all along. So I think centering prayer gives us a really, really wonderful way to practice this wonderfully challenging uh, uh, wager that the cloud of unknowing throws in our face and to allow it to begin to transform our consciousness without driving us nuts. Uh, and I, I think that makes sense. Remember that if our understanding of this cloud is where it came from is correct, we're probably talking about Carthusian monastery. We're talking about an exchange between a master and a student who already would be spending much of his time in contemplative stillness, in uh, withdraw of the attention from sensory objects so that contemplation can become much more of a lifestyle for this person and the monk, uh, this monk. As we take this out into the world, particularly helped by present-day maps of the, you know, of the levels of consciousness, I think we can find a way to work with this profoundly valid teaching in a bracketed way that still if we're faithful with it, is going to work together with our other practices to transform and revalue how we see the world as contemplative Christians. So this afternoon, what I'm going to do is after we open up uh, We'll talk about what is contemplation anyway. What is the contemplative lifestyle? What is the contemplative dimension of living? And I'm going to suggest to you that, that the way the Cloud of Unknowing author looks at it, it is a pretty good, uh, good parallel for what we would nowadays call stabilized non-dual perception. So that will be the last bit of the training. And we're going to look at that by way of, of the extraordinary ladder of the levels of consciousness that you find embedded in Cloud Chapter. wanted to do to, is to talk just a little bit about contemplation. What is it? And again, we're weaving back and forth between the cloud of unknowing and, what, and our contemporary reference points in contemplative outreach. So 
If you're a regular practitioner of Centering Prayer, it will be indelibly etched in your mind. The contemplation is resting in God. And this is the beautiful, simple explanation uh, condensed by Thomas Keating from the teaching of Pope Gregory the Great, who has lived in the early or the late 6th, early 7th century. Uh, this resting implies, as we all know from Centering Prayer, a movement beyond all thinking, emoting, sensing, uh, and self-reflection, and to rest in simple presence. And Thomas likes to use the image that comes out of the psalm, Psalm 134, is it, that says, Lord, I keep my soul at peace like a weaned child in mother's arms. So that's the image of resting in God. Uh, so that, that distinction and that definition has become a mainstay, a basic element in, in contemplative outreach pedagogy. And there's nothing wrong with it. But like all truths, uh, it's a bit of a simple, basic truths. It's, it's a bit of a simplification. Uh, it is certainly true that contemplation requires going beyond the cataphatic practices. And I've used this term cataphatic a couple of times now, and, and people may say, well, what's that mean? Well, one of the basic lines of division when you're, when you're talking about spiritual theology are apophatic and cataphatic. And cataphatic practices and forms are, are forms of prayer and worship and understanding that make use of our faculties. So our faculties are, um, you know, according to Thomas Aquinas and in a long tradition, our, our reason, our emotions, our will, our memory, those are, those are the biggies. So if, if a practice is making use of those things, is cultivating them, is developing them, then it's a cataphatic practice. Apophatic practice does not make use of those faculties. It, depending on how you look at it, it bypasses them, end runs them, or transcends them. And the reason for this, basically, is cataphatic practice basically goes back and reinforces our usual normal sense of small self, our narrative self. That means my story of me. I was born, I have these, this Enneagram type, this history, this kind of relationship, these emotions, these wills, these yearnings, this is who I am. That's our usual sense of self. Uh, apophatic practice really corresponds to a different, much more unboundaried self. Uh, it begins at the threshold of what the Eastern traditions would call witnessing presence. So it's no longer trying to find identity by our narration of who I am and what my history was. And it doesn't make use of the faculties that keep pulling us back to the smaller self. So 
I would say that certainly when we talk about contemplation in the Christian West and the Christian East, we're talking about an at the apophatic domain. And that means that, that we're quite right that contemplation won't begin until you've learned to break your exclusive and even obsessive reliance on the, on the faculties and the sense of self that's generated by them. And that, for me, was the extraordinary breakthrough that Thomas Keating and Centering Prayer Movement brought to our Christian spiritual reawakening. Because basically, up to that point, the only kind of practice that we knew, that we worked on, that we discussed, that we engaged in, in the Christian community, apart from sort of isolated cells and monasteries, was cataphatic practice. And cataphatic practice reinforces the cataphatic sense of self. And cataphatic sense of self reflect, reinforces the cataphatic practices. And so you wind up thinking that this is all there is. Your history, your soul, your reality and God is the story of you floating through this finite timeline in life with your particular defining characteristics, emotions, feelings, etc. What, what centering prayer and the whole contemplative awakening did was that it, by giving us this bracketed space and saying we're going to sit, we're going to let go of thinking, we're going to suspend use of cataphatic faculties, it allowed people to have a taste of apophatic experience and apophatic selfhood. So in that sense, Thomas's definition is not only correct, but a lifesaver, because you're not going to experience this apophatic contemplative reality until you are resting in God. In other words, until your usual faculties of perception are on the pause button. But in, in the Christian East particularly, uh, the, the idea that centering prayer, that the apophatic experience or that con- con- contemplation is therefore content-free is a misperception. And it's one that's causing us a lot of difficulty nowadays as we've come to think of contemplation as basically emptiness, just simple resting, no thoughts, no feeling, nothing going on. Uh, but in our classic, in our classic kind of understanding of it, uh, that contemplation is traditionally associated with a kind of beholding, a seeing a luminous and radiant perception, uh, a knowing impregnated by love, as it was once defined, which does indeed have content, if you want to call it that. In other words, something is actually conveyed. There's an energetic, relational, informational component that happens to it. Uh, The only thing is that it operates at a level far higher, deeper, and more luminous than the cataphatic experience and the sense of selfhood that, that corresponds to it. So the, 
the journey has basically been conceived of as a lifetime of inner refinement and preparation and preparing, which is integral. That as you spend more and more time hanging out in those apophatic practices, you also begin to, to grow an apophatic selfhood, which looks nothing like your, your personal history and time. They're not unrelated, but they're they're related like the, the sliver of the crescent of the moon and the full of the moon, if you want. They're, the one is so much deeper and vaster. So I think that, that this state, then, has been regarded traditionally in both the Christian West and the Christian East as an extraordinary gift, uh, the gift of luminous vision, and prepared for by a long and integral life of moral, physiological, neurological preparation. And I think it's one of the reasons why you will sometimes find traditionally trained contemplatives gritting their teeth uh, when, when you find folks like us who, who are managing to sit on our prayer mats twice a day for 20 minutes, confidently proclaiming ourselves as contemplatives. You know, it's like... Eh. You know, uh, contemplation is not the automatic perk of a meditation method if you do it. It's the fruit of a long journey of a completely different order. So I think we need to be more respectful of our tradition in the way we use this term contemplation, realizing there's much more involved in it. And to... uh, and to, to understand and, and, and make way for that with all due humility and to cooperate in the work of it. And yet, I think it's tremendously important uh, that, that we begin to see that, that contemplative, the practice that has come to us in centering prayer and contemplative outreach is beginning to open the gateway to a different kind of perception, which is really becoming of the the mature human being. We need to have more people in our planet attaining something approximating contemplative realization if our planet is going to survive uh, the assaults that, that people frozen at the level of consciousness that humanity is basically frozen at are going to be running this place. So we need this growing. And what Thomas has given us that I think is, you know, I wish he'd gotten the Nobel Peace Prize somewhere along the way because he's given us the first seeds on the journey to start growing a humanity that can become truly non-identified, truly non-violent, truly capable to come from a different place that sees what needs doing and doing it. We just have to be a little careful about these terms, particularly contemplative lifestyle, which is pretty much an oxymoron. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Uh, And to, to be a little bit more humbly, you don't own contemplative because you do centering prayer. But God help you if you start on the journey that it's pointing you on, grow, do the work, 
And above all, don't back away from the new windows on compassionate selfhood that it's opening up. Then you may just at some point understand what this contemplation is all about. So journey begins with a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. This is step one. It's great. Nobody's been stepping for a long time. So uh, I would say, and what I'm going to to work on uh, is that for our author of the cloud of unknowing, and indeed in general, the word contemplation in the West is a functional equivalent of what of a stabilized non-dual consciousness in the West or in the East. In other words, people, when they try and line things up between Eastern models and Western models, say, well, is contemplation, you know, is this contemplative, is it mystical experience, is it the unitive way? Well, it's the unitive way, but not the way the unitive way is typically understood. Uh, the unitive way, as we've understood it in the West, is that your heart and your affections and your purity and your yearning for God and God's yearning for you get so great that, boom, you come together like a mystical marriage. Uh, it's all, it tends to be described in the affective realm. And I think that what contemplation really, where it really is happening is in the perceptual realm. That yes, you and God become united because what drops out is this subject-object mechanism that makes you the subject and God the object, or God the subject and you the object. The perceptual field comes to oneness. You see from oneness. And so even terms like God and yourself become too much, uh, too heavy. You don't, you don't need them. Uh, they're not appropriate to that operating system of perception. Try that out on somebody who hasn't attained to that yet, and they say, you mean you're God? You mean there's no God? You know, they keep trying to pull it back to the only way the mental mind can do it, which is to say there is this thing called God, and we are in relationship with God, and God either loves us or hates us, and we're either good or bad. That's, that's thinking at the cataphatic level. At the next level out, the whole picture changes because the way the perceptual mechanism is working changes. So I think contemplation really, and certainly in the cloud of unknowing, stands for this gradual transition into an, into an operating system, into a level of consciousness that perceives reality through subject-object attention in that way, uh, which generates a sense of selfhood that consists of me, I am the subject of my own world, and I have all these characteristics that make me unique, i.e. different from everybody else, and it's this unique me that God loves. That's, that's the way thinking works at that level. But there's another level in which perception is really holographic, diffuse. You simply are able to kind of take in the whole picture at once without setting up the playing field and subject-object. The sense of you 
no longer depends on your identity, on your causes, on the language you tell yourself, on the, uh, it's, it's, my, my teacher Rafe used to say about that selfhood, I want to have enough being to be nothing. Because at that level, your identity is so hidden with, uh, with Christ in God, as they say in Colossians, that you don't need to wear out external definers to, to pull yourself back in. So there is a transition space. And if you know, if you've done, any of you done any work with contemporary maps of consciousness, levels of consciousness, some of the work of Ken Wilber and Spiral Dynamics, you'll know that we now have these wonderful hierarchies of consciousness that grew up in the late 20th century, early 21st, that basically see us running from magical consciousness, you know, like little children, uh, you know, boogeymen, gods, heavens, you know, uh, to mythic membership where you're allied with the group, to rational consciousness, then into things that you'll nowadays hear being bandied about as pluralistic or, or uh, integral, the capacity to really genuinely say coexist, to deal with ambiguity, with plurality, with multiplicity. And finally, we jump into what's then called the non-dual stages. And if you read some of the maps, there's, you know, Christ consciousness, all sorts of three or so levels of non-dual consciousness. But people say, well, what's non-dual? Well, my sense is that non-dual is the place where this operating system really shifts. That the first lower tiers, we still are working with this subject, object, I'm here, this is me, this is my history, I am a soul, I am before God. All of a sudden, at the non-dual level, it, the playing field reconfigures out of a participa participational oneness that basically functions in terms of no separation because the perceptual field is undivided. And a lot of people are talking about this nowadays. What makes it interesting to me is that the cloud of unknowing was talking about this in the 14th century. And the place where he specifically anchors and roots the work of contemplation, as he calls it, is at the junction point between classic cataphatic consciousness and cataphatic selfhood and the movement into this other, which we would now call apophatic or non-dual perception. That's where he puts it. And he sees contemplation not as some specific state of grace that comes to you, but he sees it as a work, a work which you engage at a certain stage in your readiness, in your preparation, uh, with, the, with the advice of a spiritual guide, but the specific work of reframing, rewiring, if you want to call it that, the channels of perception, specifically around the configuration of attention, so as to support 
a different kind of knowing, a different kind of selfhood, a different kind of presence. And he's already seeing this. And if it's hard enough to talk about it in the 21st century, right after lunch, <laughs> imagine how it must have been in the 14th century with a language that was only beginning to emerge as English and where he's having to talk mostly in metaphors to describe stuff that most people can't even see. So it's a tremendously profound thing, but I would, I would present to you that the cloud of unknowing is the earliest known Western study of the typology of consciousness, uh, that, uh, and that it coming from the 14th century, it's about six centuries earlier than anything else, and that it hovers around this break exactly with what Ken Wilbur would now call the break between second and third tier, or the entry into non-dual states, which he precisely correlates with the work of contemplation. The work of contemplation is to bring us to the threshold of non-dual perception and take us over that threshold. So I want to show you how he does this because this has some profound implications for the next generation of, of centering prayer teaching that, and certainly centering prayer practice that I think it's important to be aware of. It's also a profound hint as to where Christianity's theoretically missing non-dual tradition actually hangs out. So what he does in Cloud 8, uh, which is for me one of the most amazing chapters in the Cloud of Unknowing, he starts out right where he left off in Cloud 7. Remember Cloud 7, they're having this joust with a thought, and then, and then he, they, the authors take one little word and use it, and hang on to this word like your shield and butler, whether you're riding in peace or in war, he says. So then at the beginning of cloud, uh, cloud 8, he starts out and says, well, why? Why are you counseling me then to give up my holy meditations, you know, my spiritual exercises, my, you know, they hadn't been invented yet, but, uh, you know, my, my, my self-reflections, my scrupulosity, my pondering of my own sinfulness. Why are you telling me to give this up? And he goes on to say, if they do me so much good, and if they so much increase my devotion, why are you telling me to give them up? It's a fair question, isn't it? And as a matter of fact, the question is exactly in that basket from one of you all. Uh, you know, what is the place of them? So he answers in an in a absolutely wonderful way by giving us a map. And it's the first known map of consciousness in the West. Uh, so this, this passage goes like this. It's in the middle of cloud eight, and I'll come back to it and then break it down. And where you ask me why you should put it, i.e. the thought, down beneath the cloud of forgetting, since it is good at its nature when it is well used and does you so much good and increases your devotion so much, to this I answer and say to you, 
there are two kinds of lives in the Holy Church. One is the active life, and the other is the contemplative life. Okay, so far so good. It sounds like you've heard this before, right? (laughs) Uh, And then he goes, the active is the lower, and the contemplative is the higher. Okay, so far so good. We've heard these maps. Most of Western Christendom is divided on this map. But listen what he's going to do. The active life has two degrees, a lower and a higher. So yes, if you're taking notes, draw this little schematic. Uh, draw active and, and contemplative. And then the, the active life has two degrees, a lower and a higher. Uh, or he says, the active life has two degrees, a higher and a lower, and the contemplative life also has two degrees, a lower and a higher. And these lives are coupled together in such a way that although they are different in some ways, yet neither of them may be had without some part of the other, because the higher part of the active life is at the same time the lower part of the contemplative life. So let's, let's begin by just looking at the schematic, which he's going to work in a really interesting way. So he divides the field into active, which is the lower, contemplative, which is the higher. But then he subdivides the two into lower active, higher active, lower contemplative, and higher contemplative. So all of a sudden we have a full fourfold schematic, right? And then the next thing he does is draw a circle around higher active and lower contemplative so they become something like a chain link fence. So the two of them are basically intertwined. And then he goes on to say, um, because of this, a man may not be fully active unless he is partly contemplative. Right? Well, you can see why he can say that. Because if, if, the, if, if part of the higher active has already got the lower contemplative in it, then you can't be fully completing the higher active until you've got a little bit of contemplative in it. And then he says, uh, nor may he be fully contemplative, as it may be had here, unless he is in part active. Okay, that's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, the condition of the active life is such that it both begins and that begun and ended in this life, but not so the contemplative life, for it is begun in this life and shall last without end, for the part Mary chose shall never be taken away. So another way of saying it begins in this life and ends in this life is to say that it, it lives under the condition of time. So he says that the, lo- the act of life begins and ends within the conditions of time, and the contemplative life begins in those conditions but transcends them. Another way of looking at it. That doesn't necessarily mean that you live forever in a gated community in heaven. It means that somehow there is something in the quality of consciousness that transcends time when you reach a certain place in this. We'll hold on to that. And if you're a cloud aficionado, you'll go back and look at some of his reflections on time and they'll blow your mind. Anyway, so he's he's devised this schematic. So you've got lower active. Then you've got this melange of higher active, lower contemplative. Then you've got higher 
contemplative. And now he's going to go in for the kill, if you can talk about this, and define what each of these levels consists of. So he says, the lower part of the active life consists of good and honest bodily works of charity and mercy. Okay, that's pretty straight up, isn't it? Okay. And then listen, the higher part of the active life and the lower part of the contemplative life lie in good spiritual meditations and consistent looking into, or literally beholding, a man's own wretchedness with sorrow and contrition, looking into the passion of Christ and his servants with pity and compassion, and into the wonderful gifts, kindness, and works of God in all his creatures, both bodily and spiritual, with gratitude and praise. But the higher part of contemplation, as it may be had here, hangs all wholly in this darkness and in this cloud of unknowing, with a love stirring and a blind beholding into the naked being of God himself only. Well, let's come back and unpack that, because I think under all that fancy language, there's something really simple and interesting being said. The, first, the lower part of the act of life consists of good and honest bodily works of charity and mercy. In other words, living the gospel, being a good church citizen, doing the work of kindness and mercy, compassion, generosity. The, the fundamental ethical morale, morality training, which is the part, the beginning of every uh, healthy spiritual education, right? But what happens here in the second? Uh, the higher, higher active and lower contemplative lie in good spiritual meditation and consistent beholding of a man's own wretchedness and sorrow and contrition, uh, meditations, looking at the passion of Christ. What has happened at this thing? What's the difference between lower active, good bodily works of charity and morality, and this one, the, the higher part, the looking into. What's entered there? Anybody know? Humility, Humility you're close. Meditation. Meditation, well, close. But what capacity has been awakened that wasn't there before? Self-reflection, right? And this is really important because we see this so often out in life, you know, and it's, it's a kind of classic AA story. You know, somebody's hammering along, doing the good works, coming to church on Sundays, you know, going to confession when they have to, paying the tithes, pledging and living out there in the world without much thought. Bang. It all falls apart, you know. Yeah, you can call it the second. It tends to happen in the second half of life. But all of a sudden, you're face up against the, the recognition that your life as it was had become unmanageable. And, you know, AA is a profoundly, profoundly marks the gateway for many people between the higher, the lower active and the higher active. All of a sudden, you step across the border into up. Uh, who am I? What the hell am I doing anyway? 
And sometimes that movement into actually occupying your life with reflection will happen when life upsets you. You know, a spouse leaves, a child dies, a job collapses, and all of a sudden that life that you used to be living on autopilot. You know, it's about grades, it's about achievement, it's about outer, um, you know, your friends, your family, your house, your social status, that, that completely external life, all of a sudden it comes inside. And you wake up and you start to say, hey, I have an inside too. And this is exactly the, the, the place that, that, that this, uh, this 14th century author is celebrating as the place where we actually move into our true humanity. It's when we wake up inside. It's when we begin to become self-reflective. When we ask the questions, who am I? What am I doing? What am I doing here? What am I doing at for, that life can begin to take on some value and some meaning. And, you know, it's really funny that however you would want to kind of cut the line, the thin line of division between higher active and lower contemplative, we saw you often in our, in our social medias or in our, in, our, in our networks today. It's the recovery movement and, and some of the self-hope and self-inquiry uh, uh, human potential movements that are really taking up the slack in these things. And people will start with programs that we, we embrace just because we want, to, we want to live our life better. Like people will start meditation because they're too stressed out at work or because they start yoga because they're concerned that their body is falling apart. Uh, you know, and so you'd start from these motivations of just trying to make your active life work better. But these modalities then give way into more and more genuine inquiry. You start studying the Enneagram because you wonder what type you are. And all of a sudden you think, well, how do I transform? And who am I anyway? So there's a kind of really tight conveyor belt that goes from higher active with kind of more secular starting points into the lower contemplative, which is really the bona fide start of the spiritual journey. And I would say that one of the things that's happening in the world, at least as I look at it at this point, is that the church has been really, really good at doing lower active, uh, but it hasn't been awful good at working with people that as they begin to start the really introspective, as they step into the higher active and then the lower contemplative. And a lot of the work there has really, the slack has been taken up by the lay movements and by the secular movements, recovery, you know, AA and the general wellness movements, yoga, Enneagram, uh, you name the modalities, but they're the ones that are really meeting people. Uh, and centering prayer certainly is meeting people as they begin to make this practice. Uh, let's get out of the unreflected, the unexamined life, which is not worth living, and step into our true humanity. 
So what this author is saying is that when that self-reflective potential wakes up in you, the traditional cataphatic practices are super. They're absolutely perfect because they take they take that dawning, awakening, introspection, deepen it, fine-tune it. You know, you have to talk again with such respect for the spiritual exercises that they're brilliant here in taking the first wellsprings of awakening and taking it deeper and deeper and deeper into, well, who am I in God? Where am I going? What is this about? To really cultivate it. And the classic meditations the meditations, for example, on the sorrows of Christ, uh, the, the beautiful devotions like the Stations of the Cross in particular are wonderful tools for uh, awakening that deepening sense of reflection. And, uh, and Lexio Divina, as it's practiced with greater depths as we move back and forth between the scriptural story and my own story. What does this story say to me? That's a profoundly liberating question, isn't it? And if you think it's good with the regular Bible stories, try it with the Gospel of Thomas, which reads like an incredible kind of Rorschach of your own spiritual journey. It's amazing. So the whole broad belt of spiritual practices we have are really aimed at taking people from higher active to lower contemplative, and to develop, uh, you know, a deepening, deepening degrees of self-reflection, self-mastery, and self-understanding at that finite level. And the author of the cloud says that's all great, but it's not the end of the journey. So he then he uses <coughs> this deeply metaphoric language to say, but the higher part of contemplation, remember there is lower contemplative and higher, the higher part of contemplation, as it may be had here, hangs all wholly in this darkness and in this cloud of unknowing, with a loving stirring and a blind beholding. Now I'm just going to jump to the chase because I'm, you know, I can't do the whole analysis in my text, but blind beholding means to look without using that subject-object capacity of the mind, to see from diffuse awareness. And I can, I can prove that in the book, but uh, I'm not going to do it right here. Uh, with a loving stirring and blind beholding in the naked being of God himself only, these are fast code words. To, to talk about what it means to enter that bandwidth of experience where the self-reflective capacity is suspended or transcended, not from below, but because, because you just go back on autopilot, <coughs> but from above, because the subject-object dichotomy collapses, and you are one with the whole field, with the subjectivity, and perceiving out of that oneness. 
very, very different. So he's trying to explore these, which would be the classic, if you demetaphorize this, these are classic sort of definitions, clinical measurements, if you want, uh, of what non-dual perception looks like. Ken Wilber's new book is, uh, will be out by the end of the year, and you can check that out yourself, what the measures are of non-dual perception. So then he goes on to say this, which I think is lovely. In the lower part of the act of life, a man is without himself and beneath himself. Without himself because there's no reflective faculty yet. Does that make sense? You know, you're all going through the motions. Like the death of Ivan Illich, your whole life is just doing what, what is expected. And beneath himself. Well, beneath because, I would say, because you can only become fully human as you begin to exercise this capacity that, so far as we know, only human beings have been endowed with, which is this capacity for self-reflective consciousness, for standing outside yourself, for looking at yourself, for, for measuring time and space, for thinking of yourself in third person and saying, well, how is this thing doing? Uh, he says, in the higher part of the active life and the lower part of the contemplative life, a man is within himself and even with himself. Beautiful. So that when we begin to do this reflective work, when we embark on the journey, uh, we, we, we move inside. We develop an inside, as Teilhard de Chardin would say. We develop a true interiority, and we can live with ourselves. We can live in our own skins. That's part of what psychological work has us to do, because we've realized more and more how much our, our life you know, in the world, our projections, our violence, our cruelty, is because we're not comfortable in our own skins. But then he goes on to say, uh, but in the higher part of the contemplative life, a man is above himself and under his God. Uh, <clears throat> above himself he is because he intends to win by grace what he cannot come to by nature, that is to say, to be knit to God in spirit, spirit and onehood of love and accordance of will. You know, above himself also because that you're no longer coming back to that finite, narratively generated sense of selfhood. I am me. I am in an Enneagram 3. I am a Pisces. I am a, you know, I have this history. I am a victim. We're no longer going there. Boom. We are simply lost in the dance, as it were, but alive in the dance, found in the dance. So I would say that what he's trying to do then is to create a typology of different levels of perception around the principle of self-reflection. And once he's got this in place, then he can say very clearly what it is about the cataphatic practices. That Practices that we have classically uh, worked with in church, in our religious upbringing, in our spiritual nature, are aimed at the higher active, lower contemplative. To develop self-reflection and to develop a clearer and more profound and responsible sense of selfhood. 
And in that sense, they're very, very good. But they still cater to uh, the idea, the mirage of a finite self, and they still work strongly within the cataphatic faculties. Beyond that is the apophatic path, which leaves these faculties behind, and the apophatic or contemplative selfhood, which is unboundaried, positionless, full, and flowing. And so what he's basically saying is that if you want to taste this other and allow it to become the whole of yourself, uh, then you have to suspend using the practices that are reinforcing the cataphatic self. That makes sense? He, he has a wonderful, wonderful sort of quote, if I can find it here, his final, as he goes in for his QED. Uh, he says that just as a, and right as it is impossible to man's understanding to come to the higher part of the active life if he does not cease for a time the lower part, so it is that a man shall not come to the higher part of the contemplative life unless he ceases for a time the lower part. In other words, as any person in AA knows, you're not going to come to your new kind of consciousness if you're still hanging out with your old drinking buddies. You have to give them up in order for the new to stabilize. And that's exactly the argument he's making here. As long as you're really going to nurture and develop and explore this new hard wiring of consciousness, you've got to stop feeding the practices and the sense of selfhood that bring you back to the old. Uh, it, it's a manifestly logical argument. And uh, I think, again, we can bracket it in Centering Prayer. I have a question in the box that says, well, what does this mean? Should we give up all our other practices? No. Only during the time of Centering Prayer. Don't start doing your Ignatian exercises during the time you're doing Centering Prayer. When you're clear, be clear. Do your practices intentionally. Because I'd like to add just one little thing here before we take a break, uh, a little stretch break. That very often in the, in the maps of the hierarchies of consciousness that we've acquired, basically from the East and the West, I would say, you know, I would wash out my mouth with soap and be a feminist and say they're male maps because they all are pointing to a top, and they're all hierarchical. But we get the idea, whether it's the ladder of spiritual ascent or the third tier of consciousness, that the idea is that you're supposed to get there and never go back again. You know, I don't believe that is so, and I don't believe that the incarnation of Jesus happened <laughs> to prove that that's so. Uh, I believe that what happens really is that it is from that taste of the apophatic, non-dual, unboundaried selfhood that we finally acquire the freedom, the confidence, the abundance, and the intimacy to enter back into our own finite skins uh, as cosmic servants. Because one of the problems with egoic perception, since it perceives by separating the playing field, I'm here, everything else is out there, 
is that it's always perceiving in halves by separation and therefore has built into it this Planck's constant of anxiety. Who am I? Am I doing enough? Are they noticing me? Is it safe? Is it good? This, this constant narrative of trying to make myself whole, of making myself healthy, of making myself well, and you can't do it at that level because it doesn't, what you're yearning for is true, but it doesn't come from that level. And so by being able to stabilize this place where you actually taste the intimacy, the spaciousness, and the infinitude of your participation in divine consciousness. You come back and the rest of the world is relativized in a wonderful way. There's nothing to prove. You have a year left to live cosmically. You're not having to assert, insist, urge, prove, demonstrate. You simply do moving in the tempo of the objective field of reality, which is compassionate love, which is the divine intimacy, which you can taste in this nanosecond in your heart and live for the rest of your life in the world. So I believe that we are truly called to come back into our own skins, to pick up our final, finite selfhoods, uh, purged, cleared, relativized uh, as well as we can, and to live in these, the world as bold servants of cosmic love. But that ain't going to happen until we've tasted the root of the root of ourself. And that's the gift that contemplative practice has to give you. As I said at the beginning, we have 40 years of experience now collectively in since the, those first retreats out at Spencer, Massachusetts, with practicing this practice and working little small groups of people, some just joining the practice, some in it for decades, but working with this practice so powerfully built on the cloud of unknowing and its own perception that this work of contemplation, as he calls it, is leading us into a new kind of consciousness, a new kind of state of being, and a whole new hard wiring of perception. We have people that have been working with this, that have been sitting down 20 minutes twice a day for 40 years, what does that amount to? And slowly patterning in these new capacities, these new synapses into our brain and into our brain-heart connection. So this has all been going on beneath the surface. But I would say that the maps that we have mostly been using in contemplative outreach to compute and make sense of what we're doing with the journey 
are pitched to the higher active lower contemplative level. The whole brilliant teaching that I'm sure all of you have grown up on, on the human condition and the divine therapy, which is powerful teaching and segues right into the recovery movement uh, that gives you wonderful tools for recognizing your, the actings out and the invasions and tyranny of your false self and moving in the direction of something that gets called true self. But so often, and implicit in the language around here, is the idea, the implication, that the true self is simply a non-neurotic, cleaned-up version of the false self. <laughs> you know, and that, my friends, is sadly not true. Uh, Whatever we mean by the true self, it does not exist at the same level as the false self. The true self is a function of the higher contemplative, not of the lower contemplative. And the true self really begins, and this is so clear when you look at the mystical language, it, is, it begins with witnessing presence with that unboundaried, commingled, flowing sense of interpenetrated selfhood, which is dimensionless and boundaryless because it's moving. It doesn't stop. It's not a thing. It doesn't have qualities. It doesn't have a story. And uh, so what we've been doing is essentially we've been training in a non-dual practice, but trying to unpack it in still dualistic language and categories. Uh, and I think that a number of people in contemplative outreach, particularly the longer-standing practitioners, have really kind of hit the ceiling on this. You know, we've gone as far as we can go with the, uh, with the journey, you know, the human journey, the divine therapy at that level. And I think the challenge for the next generation of Centering Prayer teaching is to create the complementary next step, which begins to take people conceptually on the journey into non-dual selfhood uh, by more attention and more training to, to such things that cause a lot of people hard times here in the way we unpack things from our traditional religious upbringing. But ideas like witnessing self, non-identification, attention, and embodiment. And I think to begin to build a teaching that works with these pieces in a more consistent and systematic way and practical way to lead people to the next step in the journey. The first step in the journey clearly and patently is uh, to heal, to recognize, heal, uh, and move along with the false self, to become the highest possible finite self we can be. But that's maybe halfway there. The next step then is to step into unboundaried selfhood and its natural propensity and brilliance of forming organic higher collectivities. One of my favorite sayings is from a Sufi friend of mine who says, uh, two stones can't occupy the same space, but two fragrances can. And finite selfhoods are two stones trying to occupy the same space. They're too boundary, they're too reified. 
But as we learn to flow, as to live in these unboundaried collective, interpenetrating fragrances, which are our true selves, we get further as a collective body of humanity in forming that one body of Christ in which we are all, in our own ways, members. So I think this is work that desperately needs to be done on our planet. And I'm challenging the next generation of practitioners to say, you've already got the wiring programmed into you. You're working with this. You've laid down the tracks without even knowing it that allow you to, to move from a somewhat more heavy and urgent and boundaried sense of selfhood into something so much lighter. We just have to show you how to do it. Say, hey, the shoes are already on your feet. Click your heels together and fly home to Kansas. <laughs> anyway, that would be just a start of what I would bring to you. There's more of it in the book. You'll find the chapter and verses of some of the things I've just dropped on you, asking your permission for a willing suspension of disbelief until, uh, until you can read them and see how I got there. Uh, but hopefully this will be the start of continuing conversations when you've all got the book in hand and can come, come back at me with questions. Meanwhile, I would say as we come into the last of it, that some of this is just so, uh, so cool and so practical. Am I cheating by looking at the time before 20 minutes? <laughs> Let's get real here. Forget non-dual consciousness. Let's <laughs> No, you're not cheating. I do it all the time. The mistake here is in thinking, once again, in thinking that the purpose in Centering Prayer is to create these profound states of rapturous silence in which cognitive thinking is dispensed. It doesn't work that way. You know, in any period of centering prayer, you're typically kind of in the sine wave, and there's sometimes in which you're in periods of deeper recollection, and there's sometimes then you come up to the surface because thoughts are jostling around. Uh, and if you're looking at your watch and seeing, then that's fine. No harm's done. I guarantee you won't be walk looking at your watch when you're in deeper absorption. If you sit more than 20 minutes, no harm is done. If you come up during those periods of coming up, which are a part of the natural rhythm of it, and looking at it, that's perfectly fine. Simply be comfortable. Simply follow your own natural rhythm. And please realize that people have all different kinds of wirings when they start the prayer. And people that are the kind of Vata Ayurveda types wired are going to have a harder time, you know, falling into those deep states of absorption, that's okay. The prayer is not about deep states of absorption. It's about letting go uh, wherever you are. So just be, uh, be careful about that. There was another question that was, that was kind of interesting uh, on the same way that talked about what's preparation uh, for centering prayer. Uh, any ideas for that? Let's see. Uh, I can't see where that question was, but it was a, 
a good enough one that it follows. I, w- I like to say, crazy that I am, that I love every once in a while to do centering prayer with no preparation at all. Because so many of us like to create these long, beautiful vestibules, you know, you know, where we calm ourselves down, you know, you, you kind of don't have coffee before you do it, you, you chat, you put on beautiful music. But you see, once again, what you're trying to do, whether implicitly or not, you're associating, identifying a good period of prayer with quiet and bliss. And I want to erase that programming. A good period of prayer is when you sit down and do the work. You catch yourself thinking, you let the thought go. And as many of you know, uh, the, that sometimes the most powerful healing work is done in centering prayer. When, uh, when you're in the midst of that unloading of the unconsciousness, when there's a lot of struggle, there's a lot of turbulence, and all you can do is hang on for all your worth to not run screaming from your meditation mat. Good work is done there, profound letting go. So I think both I and Thomas would emphasize over and over and over again, don't judge the quality of the prayer period by your subjective experience of what's going on, and don't try to aim to create a so-called preferred state. It just gets in the way. Uh, wherever you are, show up. And, and trust it. Offer it as the work of centering prayer. And don't ever get tempted into, oh, I can't do my centering prayer today because I don't have 20 minutes to prepare myself for centering prayer. Plop yourself down. Let yourself be an altar in all your turmoil and chaos, offering to God the letting go. That's where the work is done. Uh, The problem of falling asleep during centering prayer. Uh, Well, at a a superficial level, you know, William Menninger loves to say, what's wrong with falling asleep, you know? Um, That sometimes the body just needs to sleep. And centering prayer does work in a bandwidth, which is closer to sleep than most meditation practices. That's one of the things that's daring and innovative about it. When you're working with more classic mantric practice, you're giving the mind a certain amount of effort, coming back to the mantra, coming back to the word, that keeps it just above that threshold of of sleep. In centering prayer, we, we relax that, and sometimes you do fall asleep. I would say that basically, don't be afraid of it if it happens. Try to meditate in periods of time when you're not already sleepy. You know, I mean, look for your most alert time to do the work. Uh, and in the short range, it does no harm You know, don't feel bad about falling asleep in this prayer practice. Realize that's an operational hazard of this gently receptive bandwidth that works in. But if you're consistently falling asleep in prayer, uh, the usual second suspect is resistance. There's something that you're 
you don't want to face. There's something that you're, you're... And sometimes the way of working with that is to just, in a quiet period of transparency and disclosure, before you do the prayer, just say, okay, I'm here, Lord. Bring it on. And it's interesting how so many of these things that are uttered in simple prayer, you're not even knowing whether you believe them or not, if you're earnest, if you're sincere, they'll, you know, show me. If there's something blocking, Lord, show me. Yeah, and then hang on. <laughs> uh, so any of the above is true, but don't, don't worry about it for heaven's sake, and don't feel embarrassed. The only place where it becomes any kind of problem is when you're in a group and you start snoring, uh, which goes on all the time in centering prayer. Uh, and somebody will probably poke you. <laughs> don't worry. And don't be afraid of poking your neighbor. <laughs> it's part of contemplative outreach consciousness. Uh, uh. Okay, here's an interesting question. Again, running down the same bandwidth. Is there any relationship to the state of consciousness induced by an artificial substance such as peyote to the state of consciousness induced by contemplation? Well, maybe on a brain scan, but once again, I think that what we've got going on here is this tendency that we see all over our, our culture to equate meditation with altered states. Uh, and there's a wonderful, wonderful teaching, again, in Ken Wilber's uh, great grab bag of, of, of tools for the contemplative journey, where he distinguishes between a stage and a state. A state is a place you go to. My place of bliss, my place of <clears throat> enlightenment, my, stage, my place of oneness. A stage is a place you come from. It's an integrated being that can be replicated in you because you've, you've integrated through, through your whole life, through your moral will, through your ethical behavior, through your practice, through your constrictions. And so the states may look alike between uh, you know, ayahuasca, peyote, and, and meditation, but the stages are going to be completely different. Because as we approach centering prayer, we're approaching it not to have a blissful experience that's then going to open our eyes and teach us all about the ways of God. What part of acquisitiveness do you not understand? It's the gentle laying down of self, the humble work, uh, the not asking for visions, the not asking for illuminations, not even caring if anybody notices that you exist. Because, hey, you do exist. And you exist already in a relational field of love which is so deep and boundless that it doesn't need to be affirmed. So to come to prayer in humility, in willingness to give, in a genuine wish that hum humankind and all sentient being be made better, in the genuine willingness to be given nothing, but to give, because it's the nature, it's the divine nature to give. And we have that in us. 
So to bring that is to bring a fundamental and different modality to the practice. And, you know, I've, I've only seen a little bit of, of, of neuroscience, neuromeditation results, but I will be willing to bet that although some regions of the brain look the same, that you're going to see some different connectivity in some important different ways through the kind of intention you bring to it. So bottom line for me, again and again, is forget your intoxication with states. We don't get enlightened by swooping up to some high state, trying to take all sorts of photos of it, and then remember it as life draws us down. We get enlightened by realizing that everything, every instant of divinity, every power of the fire of the divine heart is right here, right now. Nothing missing. When we simply have to put our teeth and our feet on the ground and walk into love, okay? So, no trips. <laughs> Where do good feelings come into centering prayer? What role do they play? Well, I could say glibly, no role, nothing. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dismiss that question quite so cavalierly because there's a profound there's a profound core in here that what happens is that we typically use the word feeling uh, as a multi-spectrum thing that includes feeling, emotion, sensation. And they're all different. Uh, Good feelings have to do with the emotional, you know, emotions have to do with my personal affective life. Uh, feelings are deeper as you set them free from, uh, from your personal reference point. And if you've noticed really deep and strong feelings, it's hard to define them in one way. They're not just happy or just sad. You know, as Rilke once said, that beauty is only the beginning of a terror we can just scarcely bear. So already, feeling, once we've detangled that from emotion, begins to be, in some sense, a participation in the divine feeling life of God, which is deep, ambivalent, complex, and always just beyond what a human being can bear. And there are no longer good feelings, because all good is laced with terror and awe, and all awe is laced with comfort, uh, and all sadness is laced with joy. So that's the feeling life. Sensation is something still deeper that's accessed in the body. Uh, and very often, when you come into, into centering prayer and draw your attention deep into the heart through sensation, what you will be amazed to discover is that the heart's radiant field is characterized by pure intimacy, objectless intimacy, intimacy that's not dependent on somebody out there to be intimate with. And it's a sensation even deeper than a feeling. And I think that much of the hidden and interior life of centering prayer is lived at that deep junction between feelingness and sensation in the heart. 
I talk about that more in the book. And because of that, and because we've sat at the, at the hem of that beautiful, deep, divine, feeling life of God in the heart, uh, what comes out of that is a deep equanimity. And equanimity is way different from happiness. Uh, you know, I had an experience. I got to go to Rome last week. I got to go to the Vatican through a whole set of uh, wonderful, wacky circumstances. And no, I did not sit on the Pope's lap and tell him what I wanted for Christmas. Uh, <laughs> uh, but one of the things that happened is I got for the first time to actually stand eyeball to eyeball with the Pieta. And the look on that, on, on the face of Mary is what we mean by this whole thing. It's indescribable. I mean, I'd seen photographs of it. But there is this mix of every feeling known to human being. There's sadness, there's grief, there's, there's devastation. And at the same time, there's infinite wisdom and repose. And that, yes, this too may be. And it's that kind of a deeply feeling life, which is the equanimity that the practice of centering prayer allows us to bring to life. We don't have to go through the, the tedious algebra of translating negative feelings into positive feelings so that we can move forward. We can drop be below the whole thing and simply gathered and hunkered in that infinite tenderness and intimacy of divine feelingness. Live with whatever is. So I think that's how I would answer the where do feelings, where do good feelings come in centering prayer? Everywhere and nowhere. Uh, let's see. Uh, here's an interesting one, another, another very, very... Uh, brilliant one. Uh, in working with trauma victims, these survivors often describe dissociative states where they are neither thinking subject or object, but connected to another place. Does this relate at all? Well, that's that what Ken Wilber would call the post-trans fallacy, that not all things that look alike are alike. And yes, there is in, in victims of trauma and in, 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 you know, post-traumatic uh, distress syndrome, uh, there is that tendency to dissociation. And I, in fact, am careful with people who come to Centering Prayer with, a, with an immediate history of trauma or a long history of trauma or with people that have got schizophrenic tendencies. Uh, because the, the centering prayer method, more than other methods, allows this kind of gentle release of the concentrative effort, you know. And, uh, and it can flip you into that kind of dissociative tendency. So I want to watch with people who have a lot of, of trauma. I'll often sit with them and say, let's do centering prayer for two minutes together, holding hands if you want so that something in you stays intact. And if I watch signs of people going back into that traumatic dissociative place, 
I'll suggest that they do embodied meditation and a more concentrative practice, just because that will force of the ego needs to hold things together. The ego is not our, uh, our enemy. It's the scab on the wound of our living. And it, it, it really helps prevent you know, us taking in more pain and more overwhelm than we're capable of. So don't treat it like a bad guy. And the moving through it really needs to happen gently as this deeper sense of selfhood is strengthened in us. So honoring that and wanting to be very, very clear with it and not kind of, um, you know, pussyfooting around it, Nevertheless, what we're talking about in the non-dual side of it is of a completely different order. And the dissociation, you know, it isn't even dissociation. It's resociation, if you want to call it. Um, that subject-object splits because it's joined, rejoined together in a higher and coherent field of subjective perceptivity. So there very, very much is an intact selfhood there. We're not disintegrating. And this intact selfhood is just working at a far higher vibratory bandwidth. Very, very different. And it doesn't result in any of these spacey or numb tendencies. You come out of the time of meditation and you even work in this illumined state, you're still right there. You know who your neighbor is. You count the change if you're behind the bread counter. Uh, you do what needs to be done in the world with force. So it's not like you don't have any self. It hasn't demolished the self. It simply is the agency of the witnessing self sealed and grounded at that lower level that can suspend the shorthand of subject-object, which the egoic self needs in order to function. Okay. So this is a really, really important question and needs to be sort of on the radar screen of those of you that are working in healing therapies. You know, I would say, and I may, it may be wash out your mouth with soap, but I've always worried with the people, worried that people will sometimes push a hard line so hard that they don't see the reality that's in their place. If people are in distress from doing centering prayer, Find a different way in for them. Don't keep pushing something that isn't working. A centering prayer will work and work brilliantly for all but a narrow swath of woundedness. But if you find yourself working in that swath, don't push your ideology. Uh, move towards more concentrative and more embodied practice if you see any sign that a person is fragmenting. And, and keep practicing to know the difference. Uh, uh, let's see. Oh, that, the question of preparation for centering prayer said, and after contemplation, period of re-entry, doesn't take a long time. Uh, I, it's important to be, I think, to be conscious as you make the transition out of prayer, 
out of the prayer back into your life. Just say, I am here, I'm doing it. Now we've again kind of fallen into an automatic shorthand where people say, linger for one or two minutes longer afterwards on the cushion. And a lot of people do that, uh, but it's beginning to become a ritual that in, in itself, and sometimes people fall right back into meditation. The idea is to make a conscious transition. And if you remember the first thing you do when you get up off your meditation cushion and remember, for God's sake, to do it spaciously. Don't jerk away from your meditation mat to run to something. A conscious, spacious transition, it doesn't need to take a long period of time. You are not in psychological regression when you do centering prayer. That was a kind of cliche of the 80s that was very, very popular when we were languaging this practice in therapeutic terms. But people that are doing the prayer rightly, out of a genuine sense of service and responsibility and self-giving, can flip back immediately, you know, because love calls us to the things of this world. And you aren't in this sort of floating state where you're vulnerable, you know. And, you know, I've gone to the, the, the door to the retreat house at Snowmass and found it locked and bolted because people are in the middle of this retreat and the idea is that if you disturb them, they'll all melt. Uh, <laughs> you know. We have to get a little sharper on our hospitality, you know. So this prayer is, brings strength, it brings graciousness. You are not weakening, you're not victimizing yourself to, to be part of it. And whenever there is the demand to move forward into action, you move forward without any damage to yourself. Uh, it's just that you want to make sure that you move consciously and spaciously. That way, it is the connection is deepened with your witnessing self, your deeper self. It's not just something you do and then you jerk back into your little self and don't even know where you went. Okay, so, uh, and I think the last question uh, is, uh, where is it? It's so great. Uh, can we really put new wine into old wineskins? <laughs> Uh, you know, I think I'm actually more interested in putting old wine into new wineskins. Uh, you know, I, however you use the wine and wineskin metaphor, and it actually has uh, some actual real important things in terms of if you know about wine and know what its chemical properties do to the, uh, to the leather that it used to be put in. Uh, it is, uh, it's a true idiom. But I would say that I think that we have in our Christian contemplative tradition a powerful, excellent, non-dual, sacred wine, which has flowed to us from the ages, has flowed to us specifically through the person of Jesus Christ, and is not exclusive, let alone superior, in the family of world religions but takes its place in the whole precious family of sacred religions, witnessing to a particular stream of love, intimacy, tenderness, compassion, and embodiment. I think that wine is good. 
I believe sincerely what G.K. Chesterton once said, Christianity isn't a failure, it just hasn't been tried yet. And that I, I so deeply respect and am grateful to the practice of centering prayer because it's really allowed a significant number of Christian practitioners to taste this infinite and good and eternal wine which has flown through our, flowed through our lineage and to begin to interiorize it in our lives. Each one of us is the wineskin. And whether we're old or new at the game, I think that we can bear forth this wine and bring it to the world in ways that really uh, utter in our own generation its enduring and infinite worth.